0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. Today on the podcast we're talking about one of the most talked about issues in the historiography of uh, the late Ottoman period and of course the history of modern Turkey and indeed the history of the modern uh, Middle East in general. Uh, We're approaching the subject of Tanzimat, uh, the Tanzimat reforms of of the Ottoman Empire that that emerge out of the late 18th century and really uh, occur during the 19th century. Uh, and we're taking a, a little bit different angle. A lot of the conventional scholarship in English, especially on Tanzimat, deals with issues of ideology, issues of discourses, subjects such as Westernization, modernization, and 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 this, and the such. But uh, today on the podcast, we're looking at uh, what sort of Tanzimat looked like in practice, as a relatively small number of Ottoman statesmen sought to implement. Uh, various institutional and social changes uh, in Ottoman society. Our guest today is Cengiz Kurle He's an associate professor at the Atatürk Institute for Modern Turkish History at Boğaziçi University. Professor Kurlu, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: It's very exciting to have you on today. Um, professor Kurlu has written a lot on the Tanzimat period, uh, as well as uh, maybe some slightly earlier periods of Ottoman history. And, and a lot of his research focuses on questions of implementation and, of course, the consequences of implementing various aspects of the Tanzimat reform. Some of this research is in English. Some of it is in Turkish. Uh, and I'm very excited to have you here today because uh, especially your re- research on corruption under the title of Yolsuzlun uh in Turkish... Uh, It offers a very fresh perspective on uh, the Tanzimat reforms that a lot of our English language audience doesn't have access to. So it's great to have you here. We don't have a translation. We just have the straight from the horse's mouth, so to speak, (laughs) to talk about uh, uh, this subject. So a little bit later on in the podcast, we'll be talking about other aspects uh, of Tanzimat. But let's start right with the bureaucracy, because a lot of what Tanzimat was about was initially... uh, Implementing reforms that would change the structure and inner workings of the Ottoman state. You know, you have this article that's that's now a book just came out. Our, our listeners can find the information on the website. Uh, the invention of corruption. We would call, we could call it in English or the making of corruption. Yolsuzluğun uh, icadı. And you say in the beginning of that original article that was in Toplum uh, ve Bilim that uh, the concept of corruption has been dehistoricized. Um, I think that's a very good entry into the discussion of, of, of the process you're talking about. So why don't you explain why, what you meant by the fact that corruption is a, a dehistoricized concept.
1: Corruption in its modern usage involves uh, uh, bribery, extortion, embezzlement. So to a large extent, when we uh, use the term corruption, we specifically refer to its financial meaning or Overwhelmingly, we refer to its financial meaning, and also to that that government officers misuse of their office. Right. So there is this understanding of the state officers, those who are officials, who are whose uh, only compensation should be coming from through their salaries, and then there is on the other hand the, the people who seek uh, services of of these government offices. So that kind of an understanding of this clearly private and private. Mm-hmm. And public understanding is kind of a recent invention since maybe late 18th century through the 19th century. The term corruption exists uh, uh, prior to the 18th century or 19th century Mm -hmm. usage, like irtikab in Turkish or corruption in English or corruzione, which you can even find in Machiavelli's text in the 16th century and even in earlier times. But in all of these usage, both in irtikab, in its modern Ottoman Turkish context, or corruzione in uh, Machiavelli and its later usage, they refer to, this term refers to the deterioration in the quality of the government, no matter what the reason might be. It could be financial or it could be something else. Interesting so it could be for instance for Mustafa Ali or Kochibe, when they were criticizing in the 16th 17th century the government and then we, when they were using this irtikab uh, or the the kind of you know the decline literature they pretty much refers to the to this non financial meaning meaning that the, the lower classes you know the class fluidity or the social mobility yeah. that askeri class in privileges were being, you know, just eroded and so on and so forth. The financial meaning is there, but not necessarily is the entire right. meaning of the, the, the term was was articulated as such. Right. This is the new one. The 19th century, today's corruption, uh, with a particular focus on its financial meaning, is the new invention. That's what I mean.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, and you can see how interrogating uh, the the modern notion of corruption and, and seeing that... Uh, Applying it to previous centuries is very ahistorical. Uh, you see how that opens up different questions in uh, regarding how changes in the Ottoman state uh, had all of these uh, very particular political consequences. So let's let's get into your research a little bit on the uh, the the making of, of of I guess of the concept of corruption or. You can, you can explain it a little further. Uh, so one of the earliest aspects of the, the Tanzimat uh, reforms, which, uh, I mean, the official date is 1839. Obviously, there's some precursors of similar mm-hmm. reforms, but Tanzimat is 1839. So in 1840, as you write about, there's a new penal code, and part of it uh, is, includes um, uh, essentially being able to punish uh, Ottoman officials who be, are becoming bureaucrats now in this mm-hmm. new context for misuse of their office or corruption. Uh, and you, you, you covered uh, a number of interesting cases involving that, cor- that, you know, would-be corruption. And one of the figures you talk about is this Nafiz Pasha, uh, who actually stands trial uh, under these accusations. So
1: I actually, I mean, the whole work about this invention of corruption in my article, which later yeah. turned into a book, is about these three uh, trials. Nafiz yeah. Pasha is the earliest one but then later Akif Pasha, who was yep. the governor of uh, Izmit, and also most importantly Husrev Pasha, who was probably, mm-hmm. as the Grand Vizier, uh, or the, I shall say the former Grand Vizier, was probably the most important uh, bureaucrat uh, from in the last half a mm-hmm. century of the 19th century. So these are very high-profile cases, high-profile trials, which were uh, taken by majlis e uh, which was uh, established in 1838, and then the, so it is acting like a supreme court, not you know a, a regular uh, trial in in, mm-hmm. in ordinary courts. These are uh, these these people and. Uh, so these, Nafis Pasha was the governor of Edirne, but who previously also took uh, was uh, finance minister. So all of the, these trials, what is common in all of them, actually, starting with Nafis Pasha, was that they, uh, during their office, uh, that they were involved in corrupt activities, from embezzlement to extortion to bribery, and, and so on and so forth. and uh, And also they... Uh, they were first taken out of their office. They were dismissed from office, and then they were tried in 1840 to 1841 summer. So the first penal code was issued in May the 3rd, 1840. So all of these people were tried according to these articles of the new penal code, and that's the uh, that's that was uh, that is. The the pretty much what uh, these work is all about.
0: And so, if I understand correctly, the the sort of innovative or invention aspect is the fact that these high level, very high level bureaucrats are going to be punished for acts that were not necessarily defined as a crime before that point, right?
1: Exactly. I mean, the the, the interesting about these trials because uh, all of the, uh, the the crimes that were uh, supposedly committed by these people, the, the, the crimes that they were charged, actually took place before the promulgation of the Criminal Code of yeah. May. So there is the the, 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 the ulterior or the uh, alternative motive for most of these Tanzimat uh, people in charge, starting with Mustafa Rashid Pasha, was actually to put in on trial to, to make an example of these people uh, who why all intents and purposes, represent the old regime, uh, in old pre-Tanzimat uh, practices in the Ottoman Empire. Right.
0: Well, if you could give, like, let's let's use Nafiz Pasha. Uh, what what were the specific activities that Nafiz Pasha did that were uh, defined as punishable under the new penal code? Mm-hmm. And. I mean, you have, the, you have the court transcripts. That's something we have to say that if yes. our, our listeners check out the book, they can actually read how the trial transpired. We won't necessarily reenact it today on the mm-hmm. podcast. But, um, you know, did Nafiz Pasha understand what he was doing as a crime? Was there ambiguity there? Uh, could you open that up a little more? So we have to understand
1: everything is also taking place not only within the context of uh the penal code but also the new tax regime these uh the Tanzimat has introduced namely instead of the, the old iltizam or tax farming system now they introduced a muhassaluk system which right. is which is extremely important because in 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 the tax farming system the whole power block meaning that the the, the way in which that the countryside is ruled is based on this, you know, uh, a harmonious relationship between the the governor on the one hand, the tax farmer, the the on the other hand, mm-hmm. and also the, the, the local notables uh, of various sorts who, to a large extent, uh, were subcontracting the tax farming system. Right. In in today, what is now Bulgaria or Greece or Serbia, wherever Tanzimat is implemented most of these tax collectors, tax farmers, were actually able to collect their taxes through these local notables, through their intermediaries. And mm-hmm. the relationship between the, the, the two, and also the governor, mm-hmm. uh, here is, is added as the representative of the state, is to a large extent based on the, on the gift exchange. So it is the reciprocal, uh, the exchange of loyalties and solidarities that come with, with gifts. So whenever a governor was appointed to a particular place, he would be showered by gifts, with gifts with, by the local notables, and then the local notables were given the, the, the right to collect taxes on mm-hmm. behalf of the tax farmers, and in, con- in return for this, they would be exempt from paying any taxes, and so on and so forth. So that kind of a tax farming system, based on uh, the redistribution of the, of the surplus value, yeah. so to speak, of the peasantry, and, and and that kind of a harmonious political relationship. When this Tanzimat was introduced, the state, the central authority, became the third force in the whole financial system. So his purpose, was, the, the state's purpose was trying to this fiscal uh, uh-huh. uh, centralization, so,
0: so gifts, so gifts become bribes, essentially in this formulation. Yeah,
1: overnight they turned the gifts into bribes. So it's very easy. What they have to do is just they have to, in a penal code, all sorts of exchange between the between mm-hmm. the state officials and the and the private people. From now on, are causing there to be gifts. Those who give the so-called bribe yeah. or taking bribes are going to be, to be to, to be punished accordingly. That's
0: what they say. So this is, you know, this is a, you're you're essentially opening up like. I mean, the gifts were sort of greasing the wheels of, uh, of the state, the tax collecting system, but also the entire, it's not a bureaucracy per se, but the apparatus that ran the state, that everyone had to have a little piece Right. Exactly. And it, it was exchanged in this form. But it,
1: it has to be also mentioned that that nobody has any proper salary in the sense that we, we exactly. think of today. I mean, the governor doesn't have any salaries, or even the the local judge, like Cardo, mm-hmm. didn't have proper salaries. They did, but it was not enough for them to run their offices. So, what is expected of a governor is not only to is to keep as uh, you know, the, paying the the army, the, the the members of the soldiers who were mm-hmm. were stationed there. So he has to feed the people who are his part of his entourage. So he he is all of the things that he is doing is through these finances. So what I'm trying to say is there is not a very clear distinction between the a personal pocket mm-hmm. and the official pocket, so to speak. Yeah. So they are public and private, so to speak. He's it's, it's kind of you know it's quite blurred in that distinction. Even the when it comes to financing certain uh, necessary things in the countryside? I mean,
0: obviously, this change has all sorts of implications for everyone involved at these different levels of the state in terms of, you know, understanding their position vis-a-vis the new uh, order of governance. Are they going to be integrated into it? Are they going to be labeled as corrupt criminals who had infiltrated the state? Will this be a major power play on the part of one segment of the bureaucracy? These are all questions we can ask. But I want to ask... Sort of a larger question what's at the root of this change you know it's often described as modernization or you know we can describe it however we may but these are all really just discourses unto themselves so what is the concrete um or what are the concrete uh changes and practices that are uh, at the center of the tanzimat that you're talking about
1: well actually i mean we can say that especially f- from the perspective of the modern state, of the late 19th, even 20th yeah. century modern states, that the, uh, that the, in 18th century and earlier times, this is not only the case for the Ottoman Empire, but in general as a, as a modern, I mean, just uh, that's early modern practices of governance. So to what extent did they rule the countryside? I mean, to what extent that the authority of the government extended beyond the capital? So this is an important question because mm-hmm. I, I take it seriously, the concept of between ruling and governance. So in that regard, uh-huh. I, I agree with the, the notion that they ruled but they didn't govern to the, to, the, to the extent that we understand from what the modern state was supposed to do and in terms of the, the capacities uh, and so on and so forth. So the whole, underst- the whole story of the modernity or the modern state is one of centralization and we it is some sort of a prized concept which is very you know just taken a, a privileged concept but we we tend to assume that centralization is good for states but what does it involve that's the final yeah the, the question what I was trying to do and financial centralization is obviously the at the root of this and because only through financial means that they would they be able to master any political Uh, uh, political cloud could they, they would be able to extend over the countryside. And the only way that you can do this, how would you direct the loyalty of the local people and the local notables, not to the governors, who may act independently, act independently from the state, and also the tax collectors, or even local notables, and how would you... direct these loyalty towards the central authority. That's how they did it. I mean, by taking place directly in the, in the, in the financial you know, tax collecting mechanisms and that by criminalizing all the former activities right. that were pervasive during the tax farming system, that's how they did it. And, and, and they have to also not, they have to, to, to make an example out of these trials. I see these trials as very symbolic.
0: These high profile individuals, high profile. Who, were they selected
1: for another political exa- reason? I mean, though? technically speaking, if they are criminal, every single All
0: right. subcontractor, in, in in individual,
1: chain. every single governor, every single local authority was also uh, criminal in that sense. So you cannot criminalize the entire bureaucracy. So, what you have to do, you have to make an example out of mm-hmm. it. And these examples have to be high profile. And they have to be also known for their anti-tanzimat attitudes. So they are not. I mean, they pretty much knew who were doing, who were they were going to try. That's that's for yeah. sure. I mean, they it was not incidental these names. Uh, but they are walking on a very thin line. On the one hand, that they don't want to alienate the entire bureaucracy yeah. by criminalizing all of them, but on the other hand, they. Uh, they want to make an example out of this. That's how they did it. And in all of these, uh, yeah. these modern states, we see these kinds of exemplary uh, trials. Like I would like to remind our listeners, like Warren Hastings in the late 18th century, mm-hmm. British, the former governor of, of India, or the, the, the director of the East uh, uh, India Company, the British East India Company, who was tried in in a very high profile highly publicized uh, tried case by uh, by the British state i think that was that was a similar in nature so that's what they were trying to do and also we have to mention that all of these trials were detailed uh, a summary of these trials were published
0: in the newspaper takvim I Vakai.
1: so it was for everyone to see in other words i mean when
0: you present it in that way it almost tanzimat um, takes on a little bit different meaning i think at least when we're talking about Mm -hmm. it in broad terms, in that uh, it's very reminiscent of, for example, the 1908, um, you know, the the restoration of the Constitution. Okay, that's the ideological component, but it also involves this group, this party, um, taking the reins of the state in a new way, but also, you know, of course, not alienating everyone. That's not possible. We see that in 1908 Mm -hmm. with the CUP, but also making example out of uh, certain individuals. Um, and so one, one has to wonder, you know, when we look at the Tanzimat in this way, like you know, ultimately, this this ideal must have been compromised as you go throughout the rest of the 19th century. That governors probably didn't lose all of their uh, original perks of the job, right? Uh, I mean, how what, what was the capacity of the uh, Ottoman state to ensure? that people would not engage in what they're calling corruption?
1: It's a good question, because in the sense,
0: because Tanzimat, I think, what it, when it,
1: especially it's in its early implementation, what comes to my mind, what I can uh, most associate with Tanzimat is their over-ambitious nature. I mean, they were so ambitious, these small elites, in its implementation, in their belief in changing the countryside, the social fabric, the whole relations of alliances and, and of conscription, of taxation, of financial centralization, and everything. Uh, and through it, they ultimately failed in certain respects. Mm-hmm. Because that kind of system, like uh, corruption, stayed there, but not in at least that they. To a large extent, they were able to teach the rest of the society what the new meaning of corruption is. Yeah. To a large extent, but in terms of you know controlling the entire bureaucracy through and making an example out of it, they probably failed to a large extent, especially in its early years, because soon after uh, then after the, the Ottoman state failed to to, to collect enough tax revenue sure. under this new tax collection system, they just went back to this tax farming system after two years of trial, and then many of the positions of these governors, not entirely, but to a large extent, their uh, their authority was restored to a large extent in the countryside. That's what I, I can say about this. Yeah,
0: I mean, studying those uh, divergences between the, you know, the theory or the underlying uh, desire of Tanzimat and how it turns out is certainly, Uh, a fascinating avenue for further inquiry into the, the political or administrative history of that period. All right, welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton here talking with Professor Genghis Kerlu from Boazici University about some of his various research on the Tanzimat period. I want to remind our listeners that we do have some materials on the website, of course, a bibliography where you can find out more about the topic, the publications of Professor Kerlu, as well as uh, other relevant background reading. Um, And uh, for this particular podcast, on our website, OttomanHistoryPodcast.com, we also do have an image that comes out of some of... Uh, Professor Kurla's other research on this fascinating early Tanzimat period. It's an image from a report regarding a rebellion that occurred in modern-day Serbia. As uh, these Tanzimat reforms were occurring, and uh, we're seeing the uh, eruption of new kinds of tensions between uh, the Ottoman state and local provincial state and society uh, in the Balkans. So, uh, Professor Kurla, if I can set up this research, which is, Part of a forthcoming Mm. article that will be published in English, and and Mm. people can check it out. Check out our website for the bibliographical information. You have these uh, colorful, uh, hand drawn images of uh, what looks to be like men being indeed very severely punished. Mm -hmm. Could you explain what they're being punished and why this report existed in the Ottoman archives where you found it?
1: These images I found in the archives just. Purely by accident, just mm-hmm. like in in many historical research, that these archives are full of these interesting things, and then, but certainly, this was uh, uh, the, the men in a in hand-drawn colored illustrations that were being beaten and tortured and their heads were chopped off and executed and so on. So these are, you know, grotesque images. Yeah. uh, Came in connection with a particular petition that was submitted by the people of Urania, which is a small town in southern Serbia today, uh, and complaining about their governor, Hussein Pasha. Mm -hmm. So that was the... And that's how I got interested in this, uh, the whole issue. Uh, how on earth that these you know, seemingly unique images uh, can turn up in I mean, it's a kind of petition with illustrations which I have never seen before. Yeah, I mean, you, yeah.
0: for our listeners who haven't maybe yeah. looked in the archives, it's not very common for mm. the contents of a document to be illustrated as cartoons, essentially, as we can mm. see there. Uh, who made these illustrations?
1: That's, uh, I mean, what I can say about these illustri- illustrations are unfortunately next to nothing. And that certainly, as I have said, triggered my interest in working more in detail about this particular episode of uh, of this rebellion or this petition, which ended up with rebellion, uh, which started in in 1840 and then a series of petitions, and then which ended up with you know a rebellion in 1844. So I followed the fate of the petition for about four years, and okay. I was lucky enough. Uh, to to be able to, to to follow the trail and then take it all the way up there in 1449, 1844. But the thing is that unfortunately, I, there is almost no reference uh, in the entire documentation or in the petitions to the illustrations. And in fact, those ilust- illustrations, uh, what they are illustrating, are only partly accurate in its uh, in people's complaints about uh, about Hussein Pasha
0: but they're they're representing persecution of the local exactly. population under Hussein Pasha so we're talking about Tanzimat is Hussein Pasha a pre-Tanzimat or a post-Tanzimat uh, Well none figure? of them
1: because the, that is the thing because there is something that we have to underline that Tanzimat is not a uniform right. in its application uh, the Tanzimat bureaucrats at the beginning made a very conscious choice of not, not implementing Tanzimat reforms uh, everywhere. And when I, when I say Tanzimat reforms, you have to understand that it's particular uh, financial uh, the tax collection system. Because in 1840, that is synonymous with Tanzimat. If you ask anybody what is Tanzimat, they will tell you that is a new tax system. So they did not implement this new tax system everywhere. All Arab provinces were excluded. Where Kurdish tribes in south and eastern Anatolia were excluded. Trabzon, northern Black Sea region was excluded. And certain patches in the Balkan region were excluded. And those certain patches uh, almost always correspond to the regions where powerful local Albanian grandees Landlords are Mm -hmm. officially were in charge, so they did not dare to implement this uh, uh, this new tax system where the Albanian landlords uh, or the governors were in charge. Hussein Pasha was one of them. So Hussein Pasha was one of the one of these local al- governors. Local, he was a governor. He was he was not a very you know, he Vranya is a Sanjak. He was a sub province. Yeah. He was the governor of this sub province and also Mutasarraf. So in other words, he was collecting the taxes on his behalf. And so he there,
0: wasn't appointed by the central state, rather he Because was these a many
1: of the Albanians uh, from the late eighteenth to early nineteenth century, you know, it says the Albanian uh, they are either through through mercenaries, so to speak, or through their uh, powerful local forces, uh, they gained important foothold in Macedonia in the Eastern Balkans. Yeah. And the most prominent one is probably Tepe Delenli Ali Pasha, and also Bushatli in Arno uh, today's what is now Albania. Uh, another albanian which who was operating in a completely different territory was mehmed ali pasha right. of egypt so they are i mean they there was kind of a reciprocal relationship between these albanian hordes of soldiers led by these people some of them were just doing just brigandry i mean mm-hmm. they were not you know they were bozuk, so to speak so they were you know just not part of the ottoman military force but they were like mercenaries and they were being they were they were under the service of the ottoman empire but their relationship between the ottoman state was you know somewhat uneasy all the time so many of the the ayans of albanian yeah. origin in the 1820s were Eliminated, were killed, assassinated.
0: So Hussein Pasha is an ayyan. Hussein Pasha is an
1: Ayan. Hussein Pasha is a very, you know, just his dynasty. His father also was uh, was the governor of or, or ayyan of that particular region. So Hussein Pasha was not very different from Tepedelenli Lure, or Bushatliorsis, but he was the only difference is he was much smaller. I mean, he was not a very big prominent. I family
0: so who are the people who are complaining in these petitions they the pictures show that they have something to complain about and I noticed in the in the images uh, there's some writing accompanying in in what language was it it was
1: uh, Church Slavic so it's old Bulgarian language so it was the the original petitions were were Bulgarian that's what it says. But many of the other petitions were the Serbian. So Serbian and Bulgarian and the Church Slavic was the... Used but the Christian Christian uh, peasants and... peasants. And about these pictures, I suspected something that I am glad that I recently confirmed through my colleague uh, Tiana Kristic of uh, Central European University. These are the depictions of na- 19th century neo-martyrs.
0: Yeah, it... Uh, it you can uh, see in the yes, picture, it looks they, kind of like all of them, that they
1: are suffering in the hands of the Muslims, and many of them, there is this ca- Christian iconography is propping up, like these, you know, just velvet red things, just like Jesus perishing on the cross, yeah. or some of the priests, and their, you know, just their ribs were emaciated, and mm-hmm. so on. So, all of these, you know, Christian iconography, you can see there. So, that's, uh, that's, but the interesting thing is that this is, although this is a neo martyr, like, Christians suffering at the hands of the Muslims and so on and so forth the content uh, uh, of the petitions indicate that it is as much as Christians also Muslims also sure. were in complaint so it was not a very kind of a intercommunal strife right okay it was more like a people in general the peasant population are against their uh, Hussein Pasha, uh-huh. and they are suffering, so to speak, equally by by Hussein Pasha's injustices, what they claim. And so, this is a
0: great um, case through which to study Tanzimat because you have it; it's the 1840s. It's occurring just after Tanzimat has been implemented. You have uh, peasants complaining in a region with large Christian populations. You know, this is just after exactly. Greece has mm-hmm. broken off from the Ottoman Empire, mm-hmm. and we're, you know, this is certainly an anxiety of a centralizing state. Uh, and they are complaining about injustices by a, a representative of what is essentially Ancien Regime at this point.
1: Exactly, but this is, timing is extremely important. What these people actually want is that they want Tanzimat. They
0: want Tanzimat right. to be
1: implemented in provinces because what Tanzimat actually brought about, at least mm-hmm. legally speaking, is, the, is among other things, is the abolition of Angaria, or the forced labor, mm-hmm. the Corve labor. And they are complaining that this is, he is doing these, you know, is using us as, as forced labor. Uh, among other uh, comes he is over taxes, so mm-hmm. this is extortion Angaria uh, or these corvee, or you know these all of the things that he they wanted is actually the implementation of the Tanzimat and its promises and the new penal code so right. to speak. So, and so the timing is important because these people have had this kind of a regime for mm-hmm. several decades, but why actually, for the first time, they wrote a petition. Well, not the first time, but for the, I mean, they enforcefully that they wrote a petition and sent a petition to Istanbul in that regard is the fact that that they wanted to use the legal terminology of the Tanzimat. Yeah. So that's how they felt that they are going to take the backing of the state.
0: Well, it also shows, I think, in this very early period, how people actually understood Tanzimat in the provinces, what they thought it was supposed to be, what they you know, these certain ideals that it was supposed to represent. And you see them, I guess you see them adopting the language of the exactly. state's own Exactly. So they know the language of
1: Tanzimat and they, they learned the, the language of Tanzimat and they wanted these new discourse, this new uh, legal framework to be implemented in their region in the name of justice and equality that
0: what Tanzimat had, had promised. So you previously mentioned in this episode that Tanzimat was a lot of it was about centralization, and of course pursuing the goal of centralization, uh, you know, from the perspective of the, of, the, of Istanbul, from the, the central state, uh, some compromises are going to happen there. So I'm really curious to ask, how does the story, how does the saga of Hussein Pasha and his disgruntled peasants play out? That's an in interesting
1: thing because the same Tanzimat bureaucrats. Mustafa mm-hmm. Rashid Pasha, Tofeti Pasha, all of these, you know, just European supposedly oriented, these, you know, the, the, the people in charge, who did not back out and who did not have a second of hesitation in putting on trial such high profile names as Grand Vizier Hussein Pasha or Nafis Pasha or Akif Pasha. They simply couldn't dare to put uh, uh, Hussein Pasha on trial. They invited him to Istanbul to basically give, to to, to hear from his side of the story, to hear his testimony. And they, uh, but that was, and, and even inviting him to Istanbul that they can, you can see that his hesitation, because such, you know, unsolicited invitation to Istanbul, they fear, might scare him off. And, and they, that could provoke him to do things that the Ottoman state couldn't dare to face, like, you know, just, you know, rebelling against the Ottoman state with all these Albanian hordes of soldiers and so on and so forth. So they were very, very I mean, Hussein Pasha is a very small pasha. I mean, he is a, merely a sanjak governor. Others, right. I mean, they are like like Edirne, Izmir, they are huge provinces. They are eyalet, so they are like, like viziers, so to speak. So he's just—I don't know—it's just a mid-level bureaucrat, so to speak. So you can see the hesitation on the on the bureaucrats. They just couldn't invite him. When they even invite, they they choose to believe his side of the story. They showered him, gi- him with gifts and then go back and please uh, try to be more careful next time. That's the mm-hmm. advice that they had given to him, basically. So, so that <laughs> and then the things things obviously got worse from that moment. And more and more petitions uh, poured from Vrania to Istanbul and they knew something was terribly wrong, but they tended to turn a blind eye. Mm-hmm. And it is uninterrupted and and even the later petitions are much more detailed. And you can see that it's very, very interesting. It's just not simply petitions of a very you know, just common issue but they, they made like a six to eight page long taxation, list of taxes, that Hussein Pasha was charging from the local population. Mm-hmm. Every single tavern to every single vineyard to how much uh, corvette is contributing and so on and so forth. So they made a very detailed... Bulgarian and with an Ottoman-Turkish translation in two languages. They prepared and they sent it to Istanbul just to prove him how much extortion that he has been doing uh, to, to it, but to no avail. And finally, in 1844, when the Ottomans finally, and also at one point, that they wanted to conscript soldiers from the regions. Yeah. And that was an insult to injury, and that's when they rebelled. Uh, Not only people in Virania, but from the neighboring provinces. So it was a full-blown Albanian rebellion, so to speak.
0: And, uh, I mean, as you're talking here, it's so reminiscent from my own research. I know very well what happened in the 1860s in the Adana region or in the the historical Cilicia region where the same type of thing was happening. You had local governors um, who actually throughout the Tanzimat period thus far... The government hadn't dared to confront them, and then you had this whole issue of conscription come up, and suddenly uh, the state is on the verge of losing the people. Even uh, and how that played out was actually that they they paid very large salaries to all the tribal leaders who were dominating the Adana region, made them part of the Ottoman elite. Uh, to the very um, certainly not to the benefit of the local population who had exactly. been living under them. They, exactly. So. It was Tanzimat in practice, Exactly, but in a way, I
1: think it is, from one perspective, it is interesting to see, uh, I mean, they, Tanzimat's bureaucracy knew what kind of uh, social turmoil might ensue as a result of the implementation of new taxations. That's why they were not able to dare to implement these new regime in many of the regions, especially where these decentralized figures are are important. Yeah. and also, it is important, perhaps, on, uh, in terms of underlining the fact that when they didn't have any, any second thoughts in putting in trial these high-profile members, that they were very, very reluctant in doing the same thing to, to others uh, like Albanian pashas.
0: Well, it offers a very different perspective on the phenomenon of 19th-century nationalism, where region by region, different parts of the empire having rebellions or having like separatist movements to to think about. Um, sort of the limitations of centralization or the limitations of implementing governance in as theorized by the Tanzimat mm-hmm. that you described sort of those l- practical limitations not necessarily dealing directly with national or religious sentiments but rather practical questions of tax taxation those limitations actually do become part of the story of the making of, of modern nations, essentially. Exactly.
1: But also, it's uh, it, it also is a very powerful reminder that, because in our historiography, mm-hmm. we tend to think that in the 1820s and the 1830s, as a result of Mahmoud II's, you know, attempts to centralize and his assault on the local notables and the ions, that that many of these ions were killed and then now that the ottoman empire you know just had a full control over the provinces that kind of a, at least in the balkans mm-hmm. that's the general idea but in the after 1840s you know just you see not perhaps not as great landlords as as Tepe de Lenli or or Ali pasha but these uh, small to medium sized albanian origin other local notables were everywhere in the Balkans, so it's far from being centralized. That's the rest of the century is right. also a story of these central authorities est- trying to extend its authority over the provinces uh, through various means. I think that's the the struggle goes on. That's right. that's an important. And the, and
0: I guess the point is, while this particular case is very well illustrated, like yes. in, the, in the sense of having great <laughs> pictures, there are a lot of similar scenes playing out. Uh, in other parts of the empire, as, this, as you said, as this story not you know this is the beginning of the story essentially so absolutely well um you know it's very stimulating conversation and and uh, this is some great research, a lot of it's only available in uh Turkish unfortunately as of yet, but i'm very glad that you came to you know talk to us today uh to present this to the broader autumn history podcast audience um I'm sure a lot of them are looking forward to reading that forthcoming article, but also checking out some of your other publications. Of course, again, reminding our listeners they can check it out on our website. So really, thank you so much for talking us to, talking with us today, Professor Kurla.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: And yes, for those of you who are listening, please do go to our website, autumnhistorypodcast.com. You'll find the bibliography and you'll find all the other information we promised. That's also where you can get in touch with the community of listeners over 20,000 Uh, facebook followers who stay abreast of the latest episodes uh, and comment and ask their their questions in the facebook group now this episode is part of our ongoing series on uh, rethinking ottoman state and society and uh, for those who want to learn more uh, do check out the other episodes in that in that series which are also available on our website uh, and look forward to further installments i want to invite you all to join us next time for those installments and until then take care